Hi, and welcome to the Freudcast. As we head into the third decade of the 21st century, who do we want to lead us towards a better future? More than two centuries ago, philosopher Joseph de Mestre pointed out we get the leaders we deserve. So it's a question that everyone really needs to ask themselves. Redefining leadership in a changing world is the theme of the latest journal from Freud in collaboration with the Forward Institute. It's called Unfollow and features the thoughts of an impressive collection of contributors. You'll hear from some of them shortly, including the Metropolitan Police officer using kindness and humility to tackle London's knife crime epidemic. The former CEO who thinks the modern role is impossible for one person to do effectively. Freud's managing partner on the fearsome atmosphere engendered by his former bosses, Margaret Thatcher and Paul Dacre. But we begin with the woman who went from helping to mould Tony Blair into a prime minister to steering the communications of blue-chip names like Kraft and Vodafone, Daryl Fielding. I think a good leader in this day and age is never going to have all of the qualities that you need to lead. Um, I think there are generally six key leadership uh, superpowers, if you like. And the six things I think matter are vision, courage fierce resolve, motivational ability, operational ability and humility. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I think because no single human being would embody all of those qualities, I think it's really important that you have those diverse skills around the table with you as the leader and you give them a tremendous amount of, of respect. You haven't mentioned charisma. Have we had a problem with following charismatic leaders too much in the past? Possibly. Um, I think there's quite a lot of evidence that sort of leading from behind is a pretty good uh, way to get the best out of an an organisation. I'm not anti-charisma. You know, I think if you have vision and you have that motivational capability, those are the two of the the, the good qualities. But if you are like that, I think you have to have alongside you people with that doggedness, with that humility and with the operational capability as well. So I think they're just two of the qualities you need but you need to make sure that they don't overwhelm some of the other things that are really important. You do, and I'm going to say stick your neck out a little bit here, it's when you talk about operational capability in the piece that you've written uh, for, for the journal on leadership from Freud, saying that you find that women often do that better than men, but because they're so good at it, they get overlooked because it's perceived that they have a lack of vision, for example, which mm-hmm. is kind of the sexy bit of leadership, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do, I do think this is a, an issue. Um, I often do a talk about leadership and, and I ask, you know, in the room who has ever been described as just a good doer. And I would guarantee that at least two thirds of the women put their hands up. Um, and I think there's two things that matter with that. I mean, operational capability is fundamental. Um, you know, leadership without a, without being able to deliver it is, is, is nothing. Um, and often having that capability at the table can ensure sure that that plan is delivered you know with with success as an outcome i often talk about the absolute car crash that was the um, antarctic expedition led by scott it was a total failure of operational capability uh, you know and people died which rarely happens in in most people's leadership experiences but um, you know, had you know, had they had that operational focus and that that capability at the top table, I think the whole expedition would have been managed well and and, and it would have been a success. And if you think about and you translate that in, into business life, you know, if you have that combination 
of practical capability and vision, and there's equal respect for both of those, um, then you really will have an outstandingly effective organisation. When you have someone, to finish off, Daryl, the head of that organisation, who has those capabilities, do they then lead by example or lead by delegation, or is it a combination of both, showing they get their hands dirty and then telling people what to do? How should they... How should they be that leader? I think it's going to depend uh, very much on the scale of the organisation. Um, I think, you know, connecting with everybody throughout the organisation and, and demonstrating that you're prepared to work hard, you know, isn't quite the same thing as, you know, working in the shop for a day or something like that. I think it does really depend on, on, on the organisation. Um, but if you can encourage everybody in that organization you know to give of their best and to respect their skills um, and to allow for you know diverse inputs and ways of doing things then I think you'll you'll have an organization that is really flying um, you know whether you are you know a, a visionary leader or one that is very very practical you have to have both things present in the organization and how you structure that I think depends. I sort of rather think that the answer to almost every question in life is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Not good for an interview, though. My name's Adia Delica and I'm a Chief Superintendent in the uh, Metropolitan Police Force and, and my day job really is the head of the Violent Crime Task Force. And in that day job, how do you view the idea of leadership, of, I suppose, changing people's behaviour when it comes to that kind of crime? So, so I start off by saying that, that people matter. So, so internally, um, my officers matter. Externally, the public that we serve matter. I'm a, I'm a great believer that if we, we get people right, um, then everything else falls, falls into place. So, so I start by talking about my officers first and foremost, the officers that work on behalf of the public, and, and just making sure that whatever we do, we deliver with humility, um, and because I believe humility wins hearts and minds. So if you tug at people's hearts and minds, you start to actually change how they think about things. Um, and, and then on the other side as well is, is if my officers are shown a great deal of humility to the members of the public, and some who can be quite difficult so in, in the area of violent crime, um, you start to be able to talk about intervention and prevention, which is what gets us away from just the enforcement piece all of the time. So, so, so I'm, I'm a great believer in, 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 in people, understanding people, understanding that what works for one person may not necessarily work for, for a great deal of people. Um, whatever intervention um, that's got to be delivered, it's got to be bespoke to, to, to people based on an understanding of people. So, so to sum it up, I think you know, every leader should understand that people actually matter regardless of what, 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 what kind of work we're in. You know, it applies to policing. I'm a great believer it applies to all walks of life. Adi, can I ask you, is humility, the importance of humility, something you've learned, something you experienced, or is it something you've always believed in since year dot? So, so it's something I've always believed in, yeah, Dot. Um, it, it just happens to my, my, my organisation subscribes uh, to, to humility and professionalism and compassion. But that's probably one of the reasons why I joined the organisation that I joined, because, because my, my, my values, the values that I was brought up with, actually, are in line and sync with the organisation that I seek to serve and hopefully the people that I seek to serve as well. Um, so, so I say something, you know, the fact that we have as, as police officers have entrusted to enforce the law 
I think what's most important is how we enforce the law, I think, is the most important thing. It, it, it's, you know, having the power is one thing, but actually how we deliver on behalf of the, of the people of London, and which is where I work, is, is I think it's very, very important. And I want to ask you about that. It, it, the way you talk about your leadership role, obviously you think a lot about, about it a lot. You, it sounds like you treat it like a privilege because you're talking about people trusting you to do the job. There are plenty of leaders out there who think it's their right to be in that position. They don't think about it as deeply as that and they don't exhibit humility. You must recognise that. Yeah. Uh, y- yes, um, um, it is an absolute privilege. Um, there, is, there is no doubt about that. To, to be able to influence how a, a group of people deliver on behalf of, of, of the community is an absolute privilege and one that shouldn't be taken for granted. And I never, I never do. Um, 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 really, so, so that it definitely is a is, is a privilege, and and I come from quite humble beginnings as well. So to find myself in a position where I'm I'm doing a job that I absolutely love can be extremely challenging, but at the same time extremely rewarding. Um, you can change the perspectives of people, you know, by by doing a really really good job with with what I say is humility and, and, and being extremely professional. Is it's a rather privileged position to be in. I can't describe it any, any differently, really, can I? I'm Ruth Turner. I'm a senior, senior director at the Forward Institute. And Ruth, you've contributed to, to the journal um, and you've contributed particularly for practices that you think a good leader should follow. So just talk me through those. Well, we call them practices because they're actually things you have to practice doing. They're very, very easy to describe, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're easy to do. Um, They're very obvious things, so listening and observing more deeply into wider groups of people than we normally do. Um, So going to the edges of your own system, if you like, and say, what are people saying there, the people who don't normally have a voice? There's reflecting. Uh, as well. This is a a very powerful but um, underestimated practice, I think. Pretty much everyone I meet says they don't have enough time to think. When you look at organisation dysfunctions or, you know, even disasters, one of the things that people always say afterwards was, well, we we didn't really think it through, we didn't have time. Um, So what we say is this isn't only for leaders, but it's something that leaders need to do for their teams as well. So to make time to be able to think individually and collectively during the day. There's working generously, of course. Sometimes that can be full-on collaborations or sometimes it can just be sharing information, so not using information as a weapon, um, as a form of power. Um, And then there's taking action because... Uh, in the end you've got to do something you've got to take action we think probably experimenting is the most um, appropriate thing to do in situations which are highly complex Um, so these are things which we have observed over our time um, working with senior leaders many of whom are under pressure in all sectors and these are the things which we see time and again um, help them be effective but also help them guard against the things which happen to us all as we get more powerful. They sound like common sense. So what is stopping leaders following these practices? Well, it's a very good question. They are common sense. So, you know, they're the bleeding obvious, to be honest. Um, But somehow good people um, often end up in organisations that... um, that burden them, I suppose, with all of the bureaucracy that comes with organisations and actually stop us doing the things that we know from all of the evidence are actually incredibly useful to us. Um, So 
often you know often organizations will try to train their people more will try to do behavior change campaigns will try to fix their people if you like um, I think there's rarely anything wrong with the people um, and quite often what the organization needs to do is to get out of their way um, to, to pair things back and allow people to be more creative more collaborative more brilliant Final question, I guess. Is there then too much pressure on modern leaders to almost be all things to all people or all employees? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's a long time since I studied history, but I think if you look back over history, pretty much any leader would say that they were under an, you know, an unsustainable amount of pressure. Um, so I don't know if it's an unprecedented um, amount of pressure. I think what's certainly true is that leaders are probably more in the public eye um, and probably under more pressure to act immediately. Um, than they ever have been. And I think that gives its own, um, it, its own distortion um, of, of what people want to do. So I think sometimes it takes an awful lot of strength just to pause for a moment um, and think through what might be the long-term consequences of these and who hasn't been heard who could really contribute to this decision. I'm Ed Amory and I'm the managing partner at Freud's. And you've worked for some interesting people in your time, Ed. I worked, first of all, um, for the Conservative Party, so that was, uh, in those days, run by Margaret Thatcher, because I'm very old. Um, and, um, and then I worked for the Daily Mail, um, which was run by Paul Dacre. Um, and both of them, uh, the reason I decided to contribute to this journal was that it was all about, you know, empathetic leadership, distributed leadership, how we're all kinder and more, more gentle. And I've worked for a couple of, 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 um, of, of very, um, very directional individuals. And what interested me was whether they were as successful or possibly more successful than some of the more empathetic leaders around. And what do you think? Is that tyrannical approach more successful? Well, it was very successful for Margaret Thatcher and Paul Dacre. Um, and what's interesting is, although some people might say that that's rather outdated nowadays, and the millennial um, generation needs a different kind of leadership, we are, um, in politics and in business, selecting quite a lot of leaders who are not dissimilar. So um, Donald Trump, um, Boris Johnson, these are not kind, empathetic, cuddly people. Um, and in business, you know, the, the, the likes of Jeff Bezos um, and, um, um, and 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 Mark Zuckerberg, they're, they're not um, they're not they're not tremendously collegiate individuals either, um, and yet they seem to be quite successful. Do you think then that leadership or sort of trends in leadership are, are cyclical? That when you think that idea of someone ruling by fear and and it's their way or the highway has gone, that actually it comes back into vogue and. Those people are ultimately the ones who get things done. My suspicion is that what is cyclical is is the is the trends in books about leadership, <laughs> um, and 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 that there are lots of different ways of leading, um, and we live in an increasingly complex and accelerating world. There are different responses to that. One response is to to have a more collegiate, more empathetic um, leadership group, if you like. Um, the other response is to have an individual who says, we're going this way. Um, and, and, and in a way, sometimes leadership is about taking a decision and, and moving forward, even if you're not necessarily always right. And some of those leaders are successful because they are able to do that. My name is Margaret Heffernan. I have been a CEO of five businesses. And uh, I now write about business and life and thinking.
and I'm a co-lead of the faculty for the Ford Institute. Given what you've written, would you like to be a leader these days? Wow, what a good question. Um, I mean, I have ostentatiously refused to be. And um, I am sometimes tempted, and it's kind of interesting. Every board I've sat on has asked me to chair it, and I've said no. Why? I think because I really cherish my freedom, and I think my freedom is actually my value to the board. And I don't think you can chair a board with the same sense of freedom in terms of what you can say and how you can provoke people. So I guess I believe that there are many positions from which to lead. And often the position at the top is the most constrained. I say this bearing in mind the piece you've written for the journal. You basically say there's too much for leaders to deal with. And you make it sound like a completely unenviable position to be in, in the position of leadership. Well, I don't think it's just unenviable. I think it's impossible. And I work with a number of business leaders, every one of whom works days that are too long, every one of whom works on Sunday, every one of whom is paid to think and has no time to think. And I think the expectations we project onto leaders are fundamentally impossible. And it's why we have to do a very big rethink on what leadership looks like, who does it, and how it gets done. What are the answers then? Well, I think increasingly that the role of a leader is to be a great convener uh, who knows what to convene about and who to convene and how to create the conditions in which people can do their best thinking. I certainly think that the uh, much cherished and fantasized sort of superhero model of leadership, if it was ever true, and I'm not sure it is, or was, I think it's dead, absolutely dead on arrival. And you, too masculine, perhaps. Well, it's not just too masculine, but it's just it's um, it's impossible to do. And the men who think they can do it keep failing. You know, we have a high level of business failure in this country, and I think we have an extravagantly low quality of management generally. And when everybody agonizes over the productivity problem. You know, I think that's kind of where the finger mostly points. Um, so I think we have to rethink leadership because it isn't possible to stay on top of everything you need to stay on top of. It isn't possible to think about the present and the future with the same degree of integrity in one brain. And it requires a very, very high level of collaboration and convening. And it's interesting, I was in interviewing a neuroscientist the other day, and he said, you know, we hire leaders for confidence when really we should hire them for their capacity to ask questions and to be skeptical. And I think that we're trapped in a very stale model of leadership. And you see, you know, you see these individuals squirming, and they're not squirming because they're bad people or they're incompetent people. They're squirming because there's an expectation that nobody can fulfill. And so they either fail or they get out before they can be seen to. And is it how they are currently rewarded for the job they do that is causing some of the problems? We're not rewarding enough collaboration and different structures of organizations. We're rewarding the small number of people at the top if they turn a 
big profit. Yeah, and I think we have to think about reward in a very different way. I mean, we've got sucked into this behaviorist language as though the only things that motivate people are sticks or carrots. Um, I'm not, a, you know, I don't love my children because I'm going to be rewarded. You know, I'm not nice to my neighbors because I'm going to be rewarded. I think we have obsessed over extrinsic, extrinsic reward and completely forgotten that intrinsic rewards are more powerful and more sustainable and more meaningful. So I think, you know, economists have sort of stolen our brains and it's time to claim them back. My name's Chris Taylor uh, and I'm a member of the Extinction Rebellion Guardians and Visioning Group. And Chris, we're talking about what modern leadership is, really. Um, how does leadership manifest itself inside something like Extinction Rebellion? Our view is probably that traditional leadership is dead. Uh, traditional leadership styles of kind of heroic leadership, uh, charismatic leadership, they're what have got us into this predicament that we're in currently. So we need to kind of jettison those. Uh, and move to something else. And I think the something else is about uh, communal self-organization. I think our motto is everybody's a leader. The interview you've done for the journal that Freud's uh, has put together seems to describe something that I would call democratic leadership. Everybody tries to have an equal voice uh, in your way of doing things. Yeah, uh, that's definitely a core part of it. Everybody has an equal voice. I think what we're discovering is that in a society that's very unequal, sometimes you have to give uh, extra voice to certain parts of the system. So, uh, Who chooses, though? <laughs> well, we've come under a little bit of criticism that, w that Extinction Rebellion is a little bit of a white middle-class uh, domain, and we take that seriously, and I think we're deciding that we need to give prominence to people of color within the movement and on top of that it's a very young movement and we think that's right we think that uh, young people kind of it's their future and they're less kind of invested in the status quo so they're a little bit freer to think radically and that's what's going to be needed so those are the two voices in particular that we're trying to promote you also say in your contribution that those individuals who were sort of the founders of the movement do perhaps have a bit of extra gravitas they're taken a bit more seriously they've been there for the long haul and that's to be uh, respected yeah i think that's true and they've done a lot of research you know there was a lot of painstaking research into what works in terms of social change when you're looking at this level of social change you know complete societal overhaul what works in that situation and they've done a lot of the research on that and so their voices carry a lot of weight um, and so it's about balancing that with the other voices that we're trying to to promote um, but the difference is that those people, although their voice carries weight, they don't have structural or positional power. So they're not in positions where they make the decisions because they're the founders. Uh, they have a voice into the whole of the decision-making process, which is more uh, distributed throughout the organization. So that would be one of the differences to a kind of traditional organizational structure. So let's talk about those, because you described how it works within something like Extinction Rebellion. How do you then 
get those external organisations, businesses, corporations, governments to perhaps follow suit, to listen to you if you're a group of voices and not just one figurehead speaking. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting because the organisational model that uh, Extinction Rebellion is kind of experimenting with is a model called Holacracy, which actually was developed uh, as an organisational model first. So it's a business model uh, before it was a kind of a model for uh, social movements. But at the same time, also, we've taken inspiration from places like Occupy that kind of tried this kind of more horizontal method uh, as well. And for myself, I work in organisational development when I'm not uh, <laughs> campaigning and working for Extinction Rebellion. Um, so that's how I make a livelihood. And I'm seeing more and more organisations really interested in how do we distribute power? How do we make the best use of our people uh, and find out what they can offer the organisation? How do we release the energy within the organisation? And I think all of that is is fed by organizational structures that are more democratic more peer-based uh flatter um and that if you can promote self-organization i think if you can give people um a, a very clear goal and a very clear set of uh, rules then people will self-organize incredibly efficiently uh, and incredibly creatively Final question, Chris. How optimistic are you that leadership, as you've described it, will become more prevalent in the future? Hmm. <laughs> the year $64 million question. Um, I think it's definitely on the rise. I think um, even the kind of bastions of hierarchical leadership, you know, think of the military or the police or big corporations, I think even they are finding that the that those models aren't working and they're incredibly stressful for the people at the top um, and incredibly unfulfilling for the people elsewhere in the organisation. So I think even those organisations are starting to realise that it's not working. Um, whether the shift will happen fast enough to uh, to save the planet or to save kind of uh, humanity from some kind of cataclysmic crisis, I think that's that's what you know only time will tell. That's the question of our age. Thanks to all our contributors. You can find out more about the journal Unfollow by visiting Freud's page on LinkedIn. The Freudcast will be back with more soon. I'm Matt Barbet, and thank you for listening. Bye.